Thank you. I'm really glad that uh, you decided to take part in this uh, worship celebration, whether you're online or on site. Thank you all for being part of this. Today we're in Mark chapter 2. We're continuing our series on ancient words to understand. Understand the message of Jesus and the Gospels. I sometimes need to pause and uh, under, look at the words that are being used so that we can know exactly what was being said, not what we think was being said. Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 12 verses. In the first 12 verses, Jesus stand, uh, steps on a landmine, figuratively speaking, of course, because they didn't have literal landmines. 2,000 years ago, all right? So, in other words, Jesus gets in trouble. One chapter of the Gospel of Mark has been concluded, and now Jesus is in, gets himself in trouble. He's Second chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 2, Jesus gets in trouble. A few days later, Mark tells us, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get to get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was laying on. I've always loved this story. And the older I get, the more I think, whose house was this? And who was in the background going, who's going to pay for this thing? Some people think, think it was Peter's house. And I got to imagine that there, there must have been a huge crowd because Peter was a think, uh, act first, think later kind of guy. And to think that he couldn't get there to stop them from digging a hole through his roof uh, means there must have been a pretty big crowd. He couldn't budge and get out there to stop them. And I'm kind of, his mother-in-law lived with him. And I, you know, I don't know. I, I've only heard about mother-in-laws. But I can imagine she was going, well, Peter, aren't you going to do something? You know, that's going to be pretty expensive to fix. I don't know. I just made all that up and read between the lines. But sometimes, you know, I pause while you're reading your Bible and think about, because these are real people acting like real people will act. Somebody has got to be asking, who's going to pay for the hole in this roof? Who's going to fix this thing? It's not like they could make it a skylight. So they lowered down the mat the man was lying on, and Jesus saw their faith. When he did, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And this is where he stepped in it. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, 
Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In, in other words, they're saying, who does this fellow think he is? He's claiming a power that belongs to God alone. Only God can forgive sins. Now, I just want to pause again for a moment to, to point out a theme that runs through the entire book of Mark. We are in on a secret from the very beginning of the book. The very first verse in the gospel tells us who Jesus is. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom. I'm telling you, Mark says, I'm telling you right up front who I'm talking about. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Then he uses the rest of the first chapter to reinforce the fact Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. You need to know this. Then for the rest of the book, he helps us see that nobody else can figure it out. Jesus knew. God told him at his baptism. We know because Mark told us at the very beginning. All the forces of darkness, the demons knew. In Mark chapter 1, there was a man in the synagogue who was demon-possessed, and, and when the demons saw Jesus, the evil spirit saw him, and he yelled out something like, uh, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus told him to shut up and come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek, and everybody goes, wow, that's different. They watched what happened. And they're still not quite sure who Jesus is. The disciples never did quite figure it out. In fact, even after the resurrection, the disciples are still a little confused. I know. We, some of you are already ahead of me. Some of you have read the Gospel of Mark, and you know in the middle of it, Peter says that he's the Messiah. But he has a different agenda for the Messiah than Jesus does. Because as soon as Jesus starts saying, yes, I am the Messiah, I have to go to, the, to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be buried, and be Peter starts to correct him. You're the Messiah. Let me tell you what your job is. Peter was confused. The disciples didn't have it together. The religious leaders never did uh, get it. They either refused to accept the evidence or they just, well, I think they refused to accept the evidence. And the crowds were always divided. And the political leaders like King Herod and Pilate, they, they were confused. This just did not fit any of their, the whole book centers around this theme. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Who, who are we supposed to think that he is? And this is the question they're asking. Who does this fellow think he is? He's claiming a power that only God has. And Jesus responds to them with compassion and grace. 
Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what, what it was they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. Pause. Think about the answer to that question, which is easier to say. <laughs> Either one is really difficult. However, only one of them is going to have an obvious answer. If you say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, and they don't get up and walk, everybody knows, well, you're full of emptiness. Then Jesus says, I want you to know. <clears throat> I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Only God can forgive sins, and only God can heal a paralyzed person. Now, we've come a long way with medical treatments, but even with our medical treatments, nobody goes from being paralyzed on a mat for who knows how long to picking up the mat and going home without going to rehab. We may do surgeries, replace knees, reestablish connections, and you know, but then you have rehab, you gotta retrain muscles and nerves, and da, 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 da. Only God can take a person who's paralyzed and move them from not moving to moving just fine. So Jesus has said to them, so that you can know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I'm also going to heal this man. So he's saying to them, I'm going to do two things that only God can do. God is the Son of Man. In other words, God is Jesus. And everybody's amazed. And nobody gets it. We're sitting there going, well, it's pretty obvious. It's obvious to us because we've read Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But this brings us up to the ancient word of the day that I want us to talk about. Why did Jesus call himself Son of Man? 
Jesus, by the way, used this title, Son of Man, 81 times for himself in the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he called himself the Son of Man 81 times. Nobody else called him that. It was just him. Um, now, some of the people who heard him would have thought of uh, the ancient prophet, the Jewish, ancient Jewish prophet Ezekiel. The phrase Son of Man occurs 93 times in Ezekiel's book. Uh, and in that book, it simply means human, human being. To distinguish him from all the other non-human and strange creatures in the visions that he has. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, go read like the first chapter. <laughs> You'll get a glimpse of some of the creatures that show up uh, in the beings that he has in his visions. Uh, some of them would have thought of that, and they would always just call himself a human being. Others would have thought of a prophecy in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. Daniel has, also has visions of wild and strange creatures. And while he's watching in one of these visions, he says, I, while I was watching... Thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, so it's a name for God, but the Ancient of Days took his seat. His attire was white like snow. The hair of his head was like lamb's wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. His, its wheels were all aflame. A river of fire was streaming forth and proceeding from his presence. Many thousands were ministering to him. Many tens of thousands stood ready to serve him. The court convened and the books were opened. And I kept watching. And with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the ancient of days and was escorted before him, to him, to the son of man was giving, given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. All peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. The Son of Man receives the authority, power, and sovereignty over all peoples, nations, and languages that God has in Daniel's prophecy. And that is probably the background for Jesus' use of the term Son of Man. He's trying to tell them who he is without getting into the confusion that obviously comes when people go, oh, you're the Messiah. I know what you're going to do. I, have, I know your agenda, and I'm going to tell you what it is, just like Peter did. Daniel's prophecy was understood to be about the Messiah. We still live in a world that's confused about who Jesus is. Some people think Jesus was a good person or a great teacher. Other people declare he uh, was a wonder-working prophet. 
Maybe one of the greatest prophets to ever walk the face of the earth. Some think he was an angel, maybe the greatest angel of all time. Not quite God, but close. Some think he was an enlightened guru who just got lost on his way to India and ended up in Jerusalem. There are some who just say that he never existed at all, which I find to be an interesting opinion. An awful lot of documentation for somebody that never existed. Um, but it's not much better for those of us who say that we're his followers either. We all have our own ideas and agendas about Jesus. Uh, we expect him to fulfill. We expect him to agree with our political and social opinions, whether we're conservative or progressive, Republican or Democrat, Libertarians or Green Party or, or Independents. It doesn't matter. We know Jesus agrees with us. And woe be unto everybody who doesn't agree with us because obviously you don't agree with Jesus because you don't agree with us. We're convinced that Jesus supports all of our theological uh, doctrines and opinions regardless of what stripe we are, what sign might be on the front of our church or whether if we, don't, if we have a church building but some of us don't even go that far. And far too many church folks pray as though Jesus came to meet our needs. We're like, we're like Peter. We, we expect Jesus to fit our agenda. Yes, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Here's what I expect you to do for me. We call him to make, we expect him to make us comfortable and secure. And we turn our prayers into shopping trips where we tell Jesus what we want. And we often tell him when and how to deliver the answers as well, much like we would do with Amazon. Devotional author Oswald Chambers confronts us with that one with these attitudes when he asks, Is your mind focused on an idol? Is the idol yourself? Is it your work? Is it your idea of what Jesus should be? If so, then your ability to see who God really is is blinded. Stop looking at the idol. Turn your thoughts to who God really is. Who deserves your worship? Well, the obvious answer is God, right? Everybody knows that. Who's going to argue you know, if I say we all need to, we all should worship God, especially in a church on a Sunday morning? Nobody's going to, well. But if we dig a little deeper, we're going to find that the answer is Jesus deserves our worship. Because God is Jesus. So there's a difference, there's a world of difference between Jesus helping us, which is where we often land, and Jesus owning us and having us. And that's the whole point of, of his coming as the Messiah and the Son of God and the King of Kings. It's helping us to move from a place of always trying to get him to help us with our plans and our purposes for our lives and uh, surrendering our lives to him for his plans and for his purposes. And saying, I'm yours. I belong to you, Jesus. 
That's it. What's your agenda for the day? For the next five minutes, what's the plan? Sermon in a sentence. God sent Jesus to us. And Jesus, God came to us in Jesus. Jesus deserves our worship. Because God is Jesus. Jesus is God. Any other view of Jesus falls short of, of the reality who he is. When Jesus says that he's the son of man, when he refers to himself as the son of man, he's going back to that, that prophecy of Daniel where he's ushered into the throne room of heaven and given the authority of God because he is God. He's not a little lower than God. He's not a lot like God. He's not a really close representation of God. He is God. My God has a name. His name is Jesus. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. We really need to see Jesus better than we ever have. We need to see his glory, his majesty, his power. There are so many times and so many ways that we've either attempted to think of him as Less than God. Almost, but not quite. Like that somehow the Son of God is not that the second person of the Trinity isn't. Quite as powerful as the first person. But they're not quite equal. Oh, the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to the truth that God is God. Whether God comes to us as Jesus, Father or Spirit, God is God. He deserves our complete and total worship. 
that you uh, are our source of security and comfort, not anything else. There's so many things that, that we go after. So many things that distract us. So many things that we expect and want from you and from others that really aren't what we need. We need you. We need you to help us to focus on your beauty, your majesty, and your glory. So again, we pray, open our eyes. Help us to see you, Jesus. Help us to know with more than just our heads, but to know with our hearts, our souls, our minds, with all that we are, that you are our God, our King, and our Lord. Come and rule over us. I'd like for us to continue our prayer with singing a song. A simple song, glorify your name. We ask God to glorify his name in all the earth so that people know who he is. <clears throat> 